Getting split Getting split ready. Getting split ready. Getting split ready. For my wife, God rest her soul. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. She's not dead. We're just divorced. Unscripted and honest discussions on divorce and separation. Getting split ready. What was I supposed to tell him? I divorced you from the show? Here's your hosts, Doug Katz and Mariah Pleasant. Hello and welcome to another episode of Getting Split Ready. Great show tonight. We've got some fantastic guests on our panel. We have Laura Barr from Embark Collaborations, CDFI and CLII Fellow. CDFI. We have Angela Schuler from New Vista Behavioral Health, Masters in Social Work and uh, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Uh, Linda LeBlanc, Family Law Attorney from LeBlanc and Mulholland. And... Here we go. Ah, Olga Stambler. He's upside down there for a minute. Family law attorney and um, mediator from Hearst, Robin, and KLLC. Tonight, great topics. What do you think, Mariah? About the topics? I yeah. think they're good. Yeah, we've got student debt and how it's impacted from divorce. Uh, can you legislate divorce solutions? Some interesting things came out this week in the news, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Then we're going to talk a little bit about parental alienation and reunification counseling. It kind of bookends that subject. Then the dropping divorce rate. We're seeing millennials get divorced a lot less, and how's that affecting things? And then choosing the right type of divorce. So let's jump right in. Our first uh, episode tonight is brought to you by the Oasis Experience, founded by Linda Lucatorto in 1999. The Oasis Experience has been a premier divorce support and education provider in the Chicagoland area for over 20 years. Check out their website at oasisexperience.com. Fantastic. So, you know, it was interesting because I was driving here today and they were talking about the debate and how student loans are going to be a big part of what, you know, what the Democrats are talking about in 2020. And it was it was interesting how it overlapped with our first guest. Um, Laura, you specialize in student loans. I remember you gave a great CLII talk. So. Talk a little bit about how are student loans different than any other debt when you talk about divorce. They're very different from any other kind of uh, debt. You um, you can't bankrupt your way out of it. Um, it is something that frequently will stay with the person that borrowed the money um, in a divorce simply because it's one of those kinds of debt that we like to call good debt. It's a debt that you incur in order to hopefully increase your income in the future. Um, it's also very poorly understood by most people, uh, and that's why I started specializing in it. I started getting more and more clients who were buried in it, and I decided you know, we need to start addressing this. So in a divorce situation, you said it usually stays with one person or the other. Can it be assigned to the other party in a divorce situation? It can. I've seen cases where it can get split um, based, you know, in, in more mediation and collaborative kind of cases. Um, usually that would happen because one spouse stayed at home and contributed to the household while the other was incurring the debt and going to school. That's what I was thinking about because you have a lot of uh, professionals who come out of graduate school, medical school, law school with a certain level of student loans, but if they then make a choice a couple years into practice to stay home for a decade, they're going to have the same amount of student loans as their spouse, so to speak, if they did the same course of education, but less earning power and less ability probably to pay those. 
Right. Although if they get into an income-driven repayment plan, um, then you know their income is what's going to determine what their payments are, not the loan balance. Let's talk about that. I find that a lot of people don't even understand something as simple as the different income payment plans that you can do with a student loan. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. So currently there are five of them. Um, and the reason there are five of them is because Congress likes to come up with new plans, <laughs> but they don't repeal the old ones. Okay. So some of the older ones out there aren't very popular because they don't really meet people's needs, um, but they each have their own little quirks and they all work for different situations for different people. Okay. From, from either one of our attorneys, what do you see? You know, obviously there's complexity. When you're talking to a new client, looking at a new case, and there's a lot of student loan, either from kids or from you know, a situation where somebody maybe was getting a professional degree, how does that change the landscape of, of how you look at it? Um, well, I'm licensed in practice in Indiana, and so we're a little bit different than Illinois with how we deal with debts. In Indiana, we have what we call the marital pot, and so everything goes in, and it doesn't matter when it was earned, when it was owed, none, whose name is on it, your name is on it somehow, it's going in the pot. Um, and then we don't do separate property. So if the court says, well, dad has $100,000 $100, in student loans and he should take that, the court then has to say, okay, we're going to deviate from our 50-50 split and then figure out you know, what a fair percentage is. We can't just say, oh, we're going to put the 100000 over here and then we'll split everything else 50-50. In practice, that's what we do, but our orders aren't allowed to say that. So we have to kind of be you know, kind of sneaky sometimes when we write stuff up. Uh, not sneaky, but, you know. Is it different in Illinois? <clears throat> um, yes, it is different in Illinois. So in Illinois, there's a concept of marital and non-marital property and marital and non-marital debt. And I'm not going to get into the very detailed, comp you know, explanations of how that's classified. But the general rule, and there are a lot of exceptions, but the general rule is if an asset or a debt is acquired during the marriage, um, then it's marital and it's subject to equitable division. Equitable doesn't always mean equal, but equitable. If it was incurred prior to the marriage, it's yours. So if um, somebody went to college, acquired a bunch of student debt, and then later got married, they're responsible for their student debt. If somebody's married and then they want to go to graduate school and they have student debt, it doesn't necessarily then get allocated. Then they're other evaluations that a court could look at. They'll look at, well, when during the marriage did this student debt get acquired? And when did the degree get earned? Or did the degree get earned at all? And then if the degree gets earned, who's going to benefit from the degree? So it's important to know your individual state rules. But knowing that all of you are mediation trained as well, does it have to be that way? Or can people come to their own agreements if they think it's fair to do it a different way? Oh, absolutely. Um, you can come up with pretty much, I, I just told somebody today, um, you know, if you go through the mediation process, you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you're not putting on paper like, hey, we're going to, you know, sell our kid. Um, <laughs> like, and even then, I mean, if, it, if there's two attorneys involved um, and attorneys are signing off on a decree, um, you know, the judges give it a cursory look, but they generally think, you know, attorneys have looked at this and have said, okay, everything's fair and above the board. And so there are times where, you know, the courts will look at your, what your agreement is in detail. I think in Illinois that happens a little more than in Indiana. 
um, especially in Cook County, because I know you guys, well, at least when I was practicing in Illinois before I said no more, you still had to do prove ups. Mm -hmm. um, so you had to go in and tell the judge what you agreed to. In Indiana, much nicer. We get to put it on paper and you could do your entire divorce without stepping a foot in the court building. So Indiana is more progressive than Illinois in this case? <laughs> I don't know about progressive, just less time consuming. So in Illinois, um, you the standard is it can't be unconscionable. So you do have to go in front of a judge and that the determination, the courts definitely favor mediation. And in Illinois, for certain issues like even like custody issues, you'll be required to go to mediation. So mediation, and I'll talk about that later, has a lot of benefits, um, including putting whatever the law is on the side and you all figure out what's best for your life and for your case and for your family, including how to deal with student debt. But you do have to demonstrate to the judge that it's not unconscionable. And that's not a hugely difficult standard. It just can't be, you know, completely off the rails. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I have a question. So what if I incurred all my student loan debt prior to getting married? <laughs> then if I get divorced, not that I would, um, but if I did, then how would that be divided? So in Illinois, if you acquired the student loan prior to, to the marriage, it's not a marital it's not part of the marital estate, so it, it's yours. It does not get allocated. Yeah. But in Indiana, it would be different. In Indiana, it all goes in the pot. Now, we would look at when it was acquired, so before the marriage. Um, and I've been practicing for 12 years, and the there's been a shift in how we deal, you know, how we deal with marital debt, um, or how we deal with student, student loan debt, rather. Um, and it used to be, if the debt was in your name and it was student loan debt, it was assumed that was going to benefit you and only you. And so pretty much everybody, when I started practicing, took their own uh, student loan debt. That has changed. Um, in the last maybe five or six years, there is an argument to, well, you know, I stayed at home while he incurred that debt. Or, you know, I incurred this debt so that I could provide this. And now I've got to pay, you know, alimony or spousal maintenance, which is what we call it in Indiana. Um, and, you know, this was our agreement always. We did this so that we could do acts. Um, so there are ways in Indiana, at least, where we're looking more at not just when the debt was acquired, but why the debt was acquired and what the two people are doing to do that. I mean, I have some cases where you have somebody who ends the marriage and they've still got 50000 in student loan debt and the other person well, they started out with 100000 but their their debt got paid off during the marriage. And so that's something that the courts are looking at now, too. Um, so I would be actually interested to know if um, if we do assign that, um, say, in the decree, you know, it's dad's debt, but mom ends up having to pay for it or vice versa. Whose income do they look at if you're going on an income-based repayment plan? Good question. Well, if, it depends on who owns the debt, um, the, and we're talking about uh, federal loans. So if the federal loan is in his name, then he's responsible for the debt, and they will be using his income to decide what the payments are if he's in an income-driven repayment plan. Okay. Is there anything that you can do um, for people that don't, who have private loans? Because generally the federal ones are the ones that get paid off first. At least in my in my experience, and I'm generally left with things that are private loans that there's just no way to work with that I know of. 
No, there there really isn't. Um, and I very rarely recommend clients change their loans from federal to private for that very reason. Yeah. You lose a lot of flexibility. So one of the more common divorces that we're seeing now are gray divorces in people as they're getting older. So now we're not only talking about their student loans, but we're talking about potentially their kids' student loans that they either co-sign for or are the only person on. How does that get dealt with often? Well, it, it's, it really doesn't matter if it's, the, if it's a parent plus loan as opposed to a regular student loan. Um, frequently, parent plus loans are taken out as the couple. Um, they're they're not. I mean, one they're not the always one one client or the other. Um, but these can be pretty substantial. I'm I'm working with a 50 year old teacher right now who's taken out 120 thousand dollars to get her kid through school. The problem with parent plus loans is they are 10 times more difficult to get into an income driven repayment plan. Okay. So, and you can't get out of it. You can't yeah. bankrupt your way out of it. There are ways to get out of it, um, but it involves things like the school that you went to has lost its accreditation, and it was, you know, it it was one of these fraudulent schools to begin with. Um, the kid passes away. Um, those kinds of things. It's very rare to get out of student debt. So, if the child passes away, the loan is. Forgiven? Because I've heard both, that if you co-sign for your child or for the, or does it matter on the type of the loan? It matters on the type of the loan. So again, if we're talking about private loans, if the parent or the, you know, if the parent co-signs on the loan with a child and either the child or the parent passes away, the loan is due immediately. Wow. Yeah. So, and even with the, the fraudulent colleges, I there's a lot of stories out there about people having a really hard time getting the current administration um, to honor that. And actually, um, not only, there, there's not even stories, there's a current lawsuit going they on. They are breaking the law. They are breaking the law. Wow. They are not only not allowing them to be discharged or forgiven, they are actively collecting in some cases That's crazy. against court order. Now, Question on, you know, we're talking a lot about, again, we were talking about people taking out loans for their own reason. Now we're talking about kids. Post-divorce, when the parents still have to work together, how, how does that work out? Can they be compelled to, to, to have to seek loans? I mean, how does, how does that ultimately work if they're agreeing that they're going to pay for the kids' school? So in Illinois, um, there's been a lot of litigation on this. Before, the law actually changed. It used to be that the court could compel parents to contribute to the education of their children post-divorce. And, and that was, can include a loan. So, and then they had to figure out how that contribution would occur, whether they had to take a loan to meet the court order of their share of the contribution for the college expense because it, it was and is still considered in the nature of support for the children um, for um, post-high uh, school education. Then the law changed and capped the contribution. So the contribution is now capped to University of Illinois, Urbana, Champaign, and state tuition, room and board. That's the cap. So if you want to send your child to a private school that's seventy-five grand a year, the court is not going to mandate that parents allocate a price tag that high. But the and so if the court apportions, usually the apportioning is kind of looked at based on income, income potential, lifestyle, 
other expenses. So if one parent earns a lot more, but they've got five kids to support. So there's a lot of factors that go into, but once the court decides what an equitable allocation would be, let's say 60-40, then it's 60-40 apportioned of that price tag, the the in-state tuition. So it sounds like a lot of planning. And, you know, we, we talked about getting people, you know, we talk all the time about getting people split ready. It sounds like with stuff like this in a DIY type world, this isn't one I would try and wing because it sounds like that could have lasting impact. So thanks so much. Great information. Laura, if they want to get hold of you, what's the best way for them to get hold of you and talk a little bit about this? So my website is EmbarkCollaborations.com, and uh, the business phone number is 773-412-3129. Fantastic. And again, you are listening to Getting Split Ready. Should I say it's Chicago's premier divorce podcast? I'm gonna, we're going to start saying that. I'm picking that one up. With us tonight, fantastic panel. Again, Laura Barr from Embark Collaborations, Angeline Schuler from New Vista Behavioral Health, Linda LeBlanc from LeBlanc and Mulholland, and Olga Stambler from Hearst, Robin, and McKay. And I was reading a cool article because we've got a Danish exchange student right now, so like anything Denmark just jumps out at me. And I was reading an article that in Denmark they are – Oh, sorry, didn't miss this one. This segment is brought to you by our sponsor for tonight's show, Linda Lucatordo and the Oasis Experience. Many are unfamiliar with what a divorce coach is, but if you're considering divorce, check out their website at oasisexperience.com. Linda's goal is to save her client time and money and lessen the emotional upheaval that often comes with divorce. That was great. Wait, now break right back into this. Um... But in Denmark, apparently, there's a huge divorce rate. Like when my, when my exchange student first got here, she's like, well, you're in the divorce business. And although Denmark is like the happiest place on earth, we're really high divorce rate. And they're going to start legislating in part of their law that if you're going to get a divorce, you have to go through some degree of counseling first. And then I was reading an article in Florida, which I think is a foreign land based on a lot of the news I see <laughs> that comes out of Florida. But that there's one particular municipality or county that's having sort of the same issue. So it occurred to me, do you think, and this is to anyone on our panel, that you can legislate things into this process to try and make people salvage it? Would it be successful? What are your thoughts? There are things that you can do to help the process be less painful um, and have less of an effect on people. Um, The legislation down in Florida, I think, is, and I'm just going to say it, it's ridiculous. You read, did you see um, I read it? it yes okay. and I read the bill yes um, because that was the link and so he wants to form a bill to form a committee to form a booklet on healthy marriages and make people read it before they get married and then sign saying that they read it before they get married we're not having problems when people are getting married no, I they're mean, in the honeymoon phase. They're exactly. Awesome. Everything's right. perfect. Their I mean, love is different than everyone else's that came before them. If you want to stop Absolutely. impulsive <laughs> marriages, put time limits or restrictions. Don't give same-day certificates, um, marriage licenses. I mean, that, you gotta, that's you what you got to wait there. a couple days to buy a gun in a lot of places. I think marriage <laughs> right. is even bigger. Um, but in reality, I'm not going to read that pamphlet before I marry my husband. Am I going to sign that box? Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I'm going to sign the what box. About, what about like stuff, though, like they're doing in Denmark, where before people get divorced, they're going to... I think Israel's got something where there's like yeah. a waiting period, and well, you have to live apart and like separate and kind of... 
Well, the, the interesting part of the article about Denmark was that prior to this course that you have to take to go through your divorce, which makes a ton of sense, maybe why we sort of did the same thing, <laughs> yeah. is that before that, all you had to do was file a piece of paper. Right. That's it. So divorce was as easy as yeah. signing that you read a book about booklet about marriage and saying, yeah, I read it. That's how easy it was. So putting that, what did they say, a 30-day or a three-month waiting period on that makes some sense. Yeah. So I, the th- the three month waiting period, I mean, almost every state has waiting periods. I think maybe Nevada is the only one that doesn't. Um, get them married quick and get them yeah, out of there quick. Exactly. Right? They've got a business for it. They want that divorce rate high and that marriage rate high. They're making money. Um, but what I didn't like about that article was, and I don't know how much truth is to this, but there was a section of the article that made it sound like the court wasn't going to make any orders for that three months, which to me is again, not in the best interest of, of a family or children. Those three months are the most stressful three months of their lives, most likely. And, you know, it, it's different there because they have different systems for getting housing, education, all of that. But if I know I want divorce or I'm getting divorced for, you know, maybe a violent reason or something like that, I don't want to live in the same home they for are three months. They, they, it's, like, it's like off the happy trip. Well, yeah, they, they also have legal They get two stuff. months of paid vacation a year. They get, you know, a year off when they have a kid. They right. have universal health care. There's a lot of reasons that they're happy, and they can get divorced by filing a piece of paper. Yes. Everything's easier over there. There you go. Now yeah. they're um, making it harder. And what you're referencing is that in those three months, they don't want any decisions made in the heat of divorce is what it says. And so the children don't get their primary question of where will I be living and with who answered for those first three months um, to our, our social work on the panel. I imagine that's pretty impactful for a kid. It can be. And it's also, especially in, I work, I specialize in high conflict divorce. And so when you have cases where you have people who are just warring with one another and the emotional turmoil that could cause for the children is just not good for their development. So you, you, you were trying to get in before I want to make sure. Oh, no. I, so I just wanted to mention in it, I agree. Most states have waiting periods, but it's not a waiting period that locks you in. Like, for example, in Illinois, you basically have to allege irreconcilable differences. And well, what the hell does that mean? And so a court, the court says that, you know, you've you've kind of uh, the if you've lived separate and apart for six months or longer, that kind of establishes it. Um, but people are going to do what they want to do. And right. so then what does it mean to live separate and apart? And it gets finessed all the time. Like, well, my question, well oh, yeah. I can't live separately, but I live in a separate bedroom and we're, we're, we're emotionally separate. I mean, any aspect of that is separate and apart. So, you're, you're, so like you're it's saying a that fiction. Can't do it. There's no way to do it. It's a fiction because they think people are going to do what they want to do. If they're miserable and they want to get divorced, whatever the rules are, they're going to check the box. They're not going to read the pamphlet. They're going to write the magic words. If the magic words are we've lived separate and apart, they're going to say that. And they're going to say we were emotionally separate or physically or separate. Use or use mom and dad's address or yeah, whatever they have to they do. Will, yeah. well, but right, no, they will figure it like, out. This is all just waiting period and things like that. Now, I think a lot of that article also talked about what do you do in the waiting period, right? So you could have the time and just say, hey, you need a waiting period. But, you know, I can, I'll bring, I'll bring a gun example, right? Like, hey, you're going to get, there's a waiting period before you get it. And if they made you, during that period of time, like, get a, get a safety class, right? Then, arguably, you'd be safer with that firearm. Yeah, they had, what, 17, 30-minute segments? But you could car well, sessions. I think, I think the way to think about it, though, is before you get a driver's license, you take driver's ed. Because there's mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility that comes along with driving a motor vehicle. If you're going to separate your marriage, and a lot of times still be co-parents... 
take this course, figure out how to divide those responsibilities and take this next step in a responsible, right. calm. So that's my whole thing. It's not the time. It's what do you, what do, you do with the time? Right. And it could, it actually, in Illinois, you are required to take a parenting class as part of your divorce degree. You have really? to. You do. Is Indiana. it online? Or how do they have it? Well. It used to be. Yeah. It's like the driver's remedial <laughs> test, then you just click through and you answer all the it, questions. It is online now. It used to be, it's called, it used to be Focus on Children. You'd have to go physically to a class, but in the last whatever many years, they did establish online classes. You could take it online, but at least. And you have to take a test. Like you have to, you can't just kind of sleep through it. You have to take a test, pass the test. So what if what if you don't pass it? Only you get divorced. It, well, you, you have to take it test? again. You have yeah, to, that's what I was yeah. going to say. Like if you fail the parenting test, you have to take it again and show that you passed in order to. All states, I think, at this point, have some sort of parenting. Uh, Most do. Um, like Indiana, it's county by county, um, and so like in Lake County where I practice, you have to do a online course and a in person course, and there's no test. You have to show up um, in Porter County, which is the county over that I do a lot of work in. You have to do the in-person course. You don't have to do the online course. Um, and then if you go to court and you fight, you get sent to Angeline to do some high conflict courses and, and co-parenting th- therapy. Do you guys think this helps? I mean, does it? It absolutely helps. The problem is, is that okay. people need people need the high conflict course before they get high conflict. Because by the time we recognize as professionals that they're high conflict and then can get into a court and make the court order them to go to high conflict, there's been so much damage done to that relationship, that co-parent relationship, and to the children. So it's you can put in whatever waiting periods you want. You can say you have to take whatever classes you want. But ultimately, unless people get help before they hit their breaking point, they're going to do damage to the relationships. And so you can legislate the crap out of anything, but if you're going to do it, you got to give resources to people and we should be giving those resources to people anyway. You know, I just had a, I had a, a call today for a divorce consult and I, I do this more often than, you know, well, definitely more often than my husband probably, you know, appreciates, but, you know, talk to the person. I know they're not ready for divorce. They have no idea what they're in for. They have no idea what the cost of it's going to be. They don't know what the process is. And they don't even know what their what their spouse is thinking. Whether it's, okay, well, he mentioned divorce, but then he mentioned counseling, and then he mentioned this, and I don't know where to go. And so I could have easily signed her up for a divorce, told her to bring in a retainer, done a petition, started the whole process. But that's not why I got into this. That's not what's best for her or what's best for her kids. I don't know her whole story. I talked to her for maybe 30 minutes. But in that time, I was able to tell her a lot of resources that, you know, our county has to explain the divorce process to parents um, and talk to her about what her insurance benefits might cover. Talk to her about counseling. Of course, I, you know, tried to steer her towards Angeline because I think she's the best. But um, and that's what this what that's what this woman needed. She needed somebody to tell her that it's OK to go to counseling. So I think the moral of this conversation is, as you said, you can legislate the crap out of everything, but you have to give people resources, which is true in pretty much any facet of government uh, legislation, but especially here. You can tell them to do whatever you want them to do, but until you give them the resources to do it and the ability to do it, it's not going to matter. So what good I job, is, Florida. When in doubt, send them to split ready. <laughs> there you go. Shameless plug. <laughs> Shameless so, plug. So you know what, though? We were talking a lot about parent stuff. Probably let's 
switch over to that part of the conversation. Uh, this part of our show tonight is brought to you by Linda Lucatorto and the Oasis Experience. One of the great services that they offer are women's empowerment groups. They're offered in four and eight week segments, usually in the western suburbs. And the group dynamic is really valuable and really allows uh, the focus to be on meaningful conversation and creating bonds between the participants. Check out her website at oasisexperience.com. All right, moving on. Topic. Want to talk a little bit about parental alienation. And again, you're listening to Getting Split Ready. Great panel. Linda LeBlanc from LeBlanc and Mulholland. Angeline Schuler from New Vista Behavioral Health. Laura Barr from Embark Collaborations. And Olga Stambler from Hearst, Robin, and McKay, LLC. So you're going to be our expert tonight on parental alienation. I'll do my best. So what is it? So, well, I've been practicing 12 years as a lawyer. Um, I am trained and work as a guardian at Lightroom. have been doing that for probably about at least half that time. Um, recently got my mediation training. Only in the last year um, have I met and started working with Ms. Schuler, Um And we've actually started a practice together, Schuler and LeBlanc, Alternative Dispute Resolutions, where we do our guardian at Lightroom work, um, mediations, and parenting coordinating. In the past, someone comes into me and they say, oh, I'm being alienated. I'm, it means, okay, mom's not letting you see the kids. Dad's not. Dad's talking bad about you to the kids. Somebody's trying to pit the kids against you. It's become a trendy word almost. But it, absolutely. Like narcissist. Yes, because yes. oh, half so the population is a narcissist. Yeah. Did yes. you know that? I'm the only one who's not. I knew that about you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with working with Angeline, I've been reading a lot of materials, talking with her, working with her. And there are so many levels of parental alienation, and the courts don't want to call it parental alienation. The mental health field doesn't want to call it parental alienation, but that's what our clients call it, and that's what we end up having to call it, and we have to fit it into a box, into one of the categories. Why don't they Um, want to call it that? There was some studies way back when in, like, the 70s, I think, and some guy that I forget his name that Angeline could tell you um, tried to write parent alienation syndrome and fit it into the DSM. Okay. And it did not fit because of the way that he wrote it. Um, and so it's gotten a bad name and a bad rap since then. So now if you go into court and you say, oh, um, well, you know, this is parental alienation, the other attorney will come in and be like, well, that's debunked. It's not in the DSM. Okay. Can I say something? About Absolutely. That? Okay, so it's Richard Garner. um, It was in the 1980s, and he was proposing that in all cases of parental alienation, reverse custody is what's appropriate. So if I have a mom that's a malicious mother syndrome, is what he called it, that's bad-mouthing dad to the kids, and the kids are starting to display certain signs, then it's most appropriate to take the child or take the children and just put them in dad's care and cut mom out of the picture. And that was what the courts were wanting to move away from because research has shown that this is a very complex issue. It's called parent-child contact issues is how we frame it now. And there's a lot of reasons beyond just one parent possibly bad-mouthing the other parent that a child wouldn't want to have contact with their parent. So I'll give it back to Linda. Yeah. Um, So now I kind of have to, when somebody says that there is parental alienation, I have to figure out what type it is. Is there a screening tool that exists? I wish. Um, (laughs) My screening tool is her. Um, and yeah, but we can't all use her. <laughs> I know, I know, and I don't want to give out her number because I don't want to, you know, lose her as my resource. <laughs> you guys will be calling her all day. Um, but no, so we have what we call kind of a like passive alienation, and I'm sure I'm going to get these wrongs, these names wrong. 
And it's basically when we're talking to kids and we're rewarding them for telling us negative things about the other parent. Okay. We don't always realize that we do it. Like, oh, you had a really bad time at dad's. I'm sorry. Let's go get ice cream, honey. Wow. Well, the kid gets rewarded for having a bad time at dad's. Okay. So yep. they're going to continue to tell this bad time at dad's, even if it wasn't a bad time at dad's. Um, are there things that, I mean, after reading some of these books and looking at some of this stuff, I, stuff in my own marriage, I'm like, we always asked my kiddo, like, hey, who do you want to read you a story tonight? And he always picked mommy. And I'm like, well, he's a mama's boy. And I'm like, reading this, and I'm like, of course he's going to pick mommy. Mommy's always done it. And now that, like, no, all right, daddy's going to read you a story tonight. Like, that choice has, like, gone way more towards, you know, like, 60-40 if he has an option. Um, does it depend on the story? It does. <laughs> it absolutely does. He, he's a little odd, so if I start the story, daddy can't finish it because then I won't know how it ends. Well, do you, I know that you, okay, you primarily do mediation and collaborative. I do, um, yes, all three. Do you, do you, and, but you did you used to, used to do litigation, right? No, I still do litigation. Oh, still do litigation. I, yeah, I do all what three. What do you see then? Do you see that mediation and collaborative are devoid of parental alienation, or do you still see it? Because generally they're working together a little bit more. Is it right? only in high conflict cases go. is what you're trying to ask? Um <laughs> No, I, I can't say that it's devoid in mediation and collaborative because um, people, you know, oh, there are plenty of high conflict cases in, in mediation and collaborative. People just make a choice that they don't want to go through court. They want to resolve their differences using these alternative processes. But it's not only for it's not kumbaya where people are just getting along. So it, it is a misconception that if you have some conflict or even if you're a high conflict person you can't participate in mediation or collaborative there are mm -hmm. lots of seminars and trainings on how to deal with high conflict people as a mediator or as a collaborative professional and i've been to plenty of those so um they're definitely out there but the mechanisms by which you address them there's so many more ways that can be that it can be addressed through mediation or collaborative so it still might be there but because they've kind of agreed that the kids come first as an example they're going to be better at resolving it. Well, first of all, they're more open to hearing ideas and, and, and generating options because ideas and generating options doesn't exist in court. In court, the judge is just making these decisions. And so the biggest challenge I find when I, and this does come up a lot in my practice too, where this word is just used and what does it mean? And I tell my clients, I want a journal. If you're saying there's alienation, I want a journal. Tell me exactly what happened, on what day, who did it, what, and then I can like look at the look at the sequence of events and help really try to identify what is going on. Is it really the parent that's that's bad mouthing, or is it the child who thinks this is what the parent wants to hear, and then they're trying to reinforce the idea of what the parent wants because they want to please the parent. So there's so many different dynamics, and the problem is because it is so complex and so gray, there isn't just a quick resolution in court. I have a case now where everybody, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck, right? So. There's so many facts that suggest that mom is doing things that are really interfering with dad having a good relationship with the kids. But it's still nuanced and it's still gray and it's not enough where you can really go to court and seek a resolution because the judge can only do what what um, what was said before, cut, parent, cut time with one parent and give more time to the other parent or literally move the kid. And I've actually seen a case where the judge did move a kid because the alienation was so extreme. But those are extreme. Right. And but, so you can't, it's, it's just, the court is just not a great place to address alienation successfully. No, but successfully. your example earlier, when you're talking about, you know, alienation, 
subconsciously even occurring during during when you're married. You could be happily yeah. married, but ultimately, you know, creating that. How often during a divorce do you see alienation when someone doesn't even know they're doing it? Almost and how do you solve 100%. that? Do you, do you, can the court make someone go <laughs> yeah. to a, uh, a counselor or a That's therapist? It, so, yes. Um, here's the thing is there are absolutely some parents out there that know what they're doing. They'll never admit it. Um, I mean, at least not to the judge. Okay. Um, there are, however, a lot of what we call gatekeepers. Um, and those are parents who are alienating a child from a parent, but they're doing it because they believe that they're safeguarding the, the child. Those parents will at least admit their behaviors, but they'll give you the reasons as to why they're doing it. And so if you can get those reasons for them to be a gatekeeper away, you've got a way to stop the alienation. Most of the time, the hard cases are the parent who just absolutely refuses that they're alienating, that they're doing anything wrong at all. Um, and those are the ones where it's the hardest to really overcome. What we do in Lake County is we send them to a high conflict, Lake and Porter, we send them to a high conflict co-parenting education course. Um, and those courses range anywhere from two sessions to six sessions. Um, the courses themselves generally, if we get them early enough, we'll do the job. Problem is we, ge we generally don't get them early enough. So at that point, then that's where co-parenting counseling comes in and because the education doesn't address their specific issues until those two parents can sit in a room together and actually have a conversation they're still high conflict so the parents who come in and say well you know we're civil like when we exchange at the police station it's all fine okay well you're exchanging at the police station so everything's not fine yeah that seems super fine to your kids they think yeah. that's totally normal that's where you do an ebay you know transaction it's not where you have to exchange kids hopefully. exactly <laughs> But we do have our, our police stations are now set up for, you know, Craigslist, eBay transactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they've got cameras in the. So we have parents that will literally no, I'm not doing just car to car exchange. I want it in the lobby. So it's on wow. video. And it's like this just makes it 100 times worse. Or the parents who want to exchange at the gas station because it's convenient. How often do you guys find that the alienation is communicate where no one's really talking about it, but the kid says something? I was like, well, wait a minute. There's something more going on here than we know about. Are there times when that happens? Or does your spidey sense tell you pretty much right away? So <laughs> as, as a lawyer, <laughs> the spidey sense is very helpful. As a guardian at Lydom, I get to actually talk to the kids because um, I'm, I'm representing their best interest. And so it's a lot easier to tell what's going on as a guardian at Lydom. That's what I was going to say. A the kids will say something. You see the, kind of the same? Yeah. Well, I see it, you know. You, you get a sense of the case pretty quickly when you're dealing with your client and then all of a sudden you're talking to the other attorney and you're starting to get a sense of what the fight is when it comes to even like the most basic parenting schedule or cooperation on choosing extracurriculars. And so doing this as long as we've been doing this um, and seeing kind of the order of magnitude of cases and all of the data that you see over doing so many cases for so long, you can pretty quickly see the patterns of behavior and which trigger the red flags of, okay, something's going on here with the parents. You know, I think that to some extent, some undercurrent of playing the parents against each other or playing the kid is going to happen in a lot of more cases than we would like, just because parents are trying to start their own new lives without that person. And it's an emotionally really difficult time. When do we get to like, 
the danger zone. I mean, none of it's healthy, but some of it's really bad, right? Like there's cases where we're really impacting these kids' um, emotions and mental state in a way that can do pretty permanent damage from what I've read. Is that true? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I've had a case where the dad recorded the mom and the things that the mom said about the dad, the dad's new wife and child, the half sibling of their child was to the point where the judge cut off all contact. Wow. From a from one taped conversation, the things that were said in that conversation from the mom to that child about the dad and the new and the stepmom and the sibling were to the point where the judge said no contact wow. not even supervised like zero contact until they were going to figure out therapy and supervised visitation no phone contact so yeah it can get really bad but the good news there's ways to fix it there is so real quick if they want, if our listeners want to get hold of you, Linda, what's the best way to get hold of you? Uh, best way to get a hold of me is actually through um, Schuler and LeBlanc, and you can do that at SchulerLeBlanc.com, um, and our phone number is two one nine two eight five two one four three. Your own phone number. I'm like that. And my own email address. <laughs> well, I've got three different, uh, well, two businesses that I own, and then one that I help, uh, you know, set up. Because I'm the, I'm the, the attorney. Like so I've got three different phone numbers i got to remember and then my own. So it gets a little hard sometimes. Once again, you are listening to Getting Split Ready, Chicago's premier divorce <laughs> podcast. I told you I was going to add that. <laughs> With us tonight, awesome panel. We've got Angeline Schuler from New Vista Behavioral Health, Laura Barr from Embark Collaborations, Linda LeBlanc from LeBlanc and Mulholland. I'm going to get it right this time. And Olga Stambler. From Hearst, Robin, and Kay. I don't know why I kept throwing a McKay. Scottish or something, I guess, in my brain. <laughs> um, tonight's show is brought to you by our sponsor, Linda Lucatordo and the Oasis Experience. Linda helps clients create their own new lives as they go through the divorce process. Create the life you deserve and re-identify, re-energize, and rediscover yourself. Check out their website at oasisexperience.com or call Linda at 630-887-0374. So the light at the end of the tunnel, if people find out that they're in a parental alienation situation and they fix it because it can be fixed, right? He makes it sound so simple, doesn't he? Well, yeah. I'm an optimist. <laughs> I'm a total optimist. I see the good in people. I got to these days. I but used to. How do you? <laughs> yeah, this, how do you me. What, when you bring people back together, talk a little bit about that. Well, that's something different. So the best prevention for parental alienation and the best tools that we have is co-parenting. And so research shows that time and time again, if we can get the people to lower their hostility and to work together, that's going to be the best way to cut off parental alienation. I just want to say, I tell every client I have to do co-parent counseling. And it's amazing how it's not a known like people know when their marriage is ending, we should try counseling mm -hmm. to save the marriage. What they don't know is to try counseling to redefine the marriage. Because if you have kids, you're still going to be in a partnership. It's just going to be different. So if you can still put some of those old issues to bed and work through some of that stuff that is making you angry and hurt and not your best parent, I'll send them to you all day long. Great. <laughs> awesome. Now, but so co-parenting, best solution so I developed a program, okay. and the program is evidence-based, and um, it, it combines two components. One is a six-week um, group 
setting of education, technically psychosocial education. Um, and the reason I like the group is because other people who are going through it can talk to each other so much more than some therapist standing up there talking at them. And so it really does kind of build this environment where people are working to get better and they have the support of other people going through the same things. And then I have also six weeks required of co-parenting counseling, and that's where we talk about individualized issues. And I cannot tell you how many times people come out of the first like class, the first group, and are just like, whoa, I've done every single thing on that list. No, they're bad things. They're wrong. Oh things. yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. They're, yeah, they're like, not bragging. No. No. Like I had I, one guy I that was just like, I left the, and I could not leave the parking lot. I was just staring at my steering wheel, like, oh my gosh, what am I doing to my children? And so it's really eye-opening. It's powerful. Um, it, it gives people the perspective because we actually ask them to um, take the perspective of the child and then watch a series of people fighting, like videos of parents fighting, and then we ask them. What is the child upset about? What might they be feeling? What would be the long-term consequences if they continue to feel this way? Wow. And so by being able to do this, and usually it works with like moderate, um, the really severe cases, it doesn't really unfortunately work that great because they usually have some personality disorders that aren't going to really be as impacted <laughs> by how their actions are affecting others. But um, for like mild and moderate families, even though it's called high conflict, it, it does seem to really help. And what's neat is I see that it helps like six months down the road. So even like when they're in it, it's like so frustrating. But then like I continue to monitor them sometimes on Our Family Wizard, which is a great program. And um, I'll go back in and I'll look at their co-parenting relations down the road and, and you'll see like just the work that they've done and how it really sunk in. Wow. So I've even seen some of Angeline's um, re reunification cases and she makes them do the parenting stuff too, the co-parenting. Um, and I've seen the ones that do it willingly. Um, and they seem to not be at the office anymore. And I see the ones that have had to be ordered to go to it for court. Um, and yeah, they're, they're still around the office sometimes. So the reunification part of what she does is really something that is unique to her. And we don't have many providers who do it in the can area. That, can That's reunification, true. can that be... Can that be forced into a... I shouldn't say forced, but can be required in an MSA as an example? Can you like say, hey, you yes. know what, there's been alienation leading up to the divorce and during the divorce and now as part of this everybody's going to do reunification counseling. so an msa is is a marital settlement agreement and in illinois that's money issues um but as long as it's not unconscionable two people can agree to anything so you can definitely as part of your like allocation judgment your parenting plan agree that therapy will be part of it and reunification therapy if there's really been alienation with one parent can be part of it also a, a judge can order it well, and then I was yeah. going to say, if if it's in there and then they don't do it, what happens? Can they lose, then they're in contempt? Can they lose custody? Yeah. Is that well? So, then they're in contempt, and okay. then you can and then you can enforce it. Just just like if you're defaulted on a, on any judgment, it uh, an M, once an MSA is entered, it's a judgment. It's enforceable like any judgment. All provisions are enforceable, and if somebody doesn't comply, they're in contempt, and then the court can find them in contempt and force them to comply and sanction them. Con contempt sounds really horrible. Um, but when you get down to it, most of the time you're found in contempt and you have to pay the other person's attorney fees. You may get threatened with jail time, but that almost never actually ends up going through. Um, so one of the nice things that Angeline does, and I'm going to send this over to her so she can tell you about it, is that she involves the whole family system. Um, and part of that is we really need to kind of get the the system on board with enforcing 
the entire family system participating in the reunification counseling because it's not just the parent and the child who have the problem because reunification counseling can also be done you know dad just hasn't been around for six years or you know mom and dad didn't get along and you know maybe mom had a drug problem and now she's clean so it's been two years um so it's not always an alienation thing there are other ways to get in there um but if the whole family doesn't buy in and participate that's when the process just really can't work. Well, and you had mentioned that you do something novel or that works, I guess. So, what do you mean by the whole that. family? Yeah. Okay. So, Plain. what what's with reunification counseling? And this is what the research has said. So, I'm going and I, I start my practice based on research. Research says that parental alienation it's not like a diagnosis in the DSM where hey, you know, if you have depression, you have these symptoms, and this is you know your diagnosis. It's actually a dysfunctional family process. So that means that there are interplays between family members that reinforces this process. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, my kids will oftentimes make fun of their grandmother for being silly. And they can actually be reinforcing feelings of disdain towards their grandmother, even if I have nothing to do with it. So the reason we include the whole family system is so that we're including the children. You know, because one sibling could have really not liked that dad or that stepdad or whatever, but the other two children are from that stepdad. And so we, like, get the whole system to come together, and we try to hash out some of the, the things that are causing the discord, and we give it our best go. And the parents that come in and they're doing this, and oftentimes, like the cases that she had mentioned where, hey, you know, one parent was absent for a couple years or... You know, there was some reason why the person was away and everyone's on board. They go very quickly and very successfully into getting the child connected and having a good parent-child bond, which is really what the term reunification counseling is an umbrella term for helping children have a better bond with their parent. And sometimes that bond can be strained for many reasons. I get a lot of affairs and the children might side with the person who was like the innocent spouse. And, you know, that takes a little bit longer to get through. But if I can get the, the spouse to also come in and or the former spouse to also come in and help do the work with the kids, then a lot more gets accomplished. Um, sometimes in cases of severe alienation, I absolutely cannot get the parents to cooperate. And unless there's some court intervention where the parents are going to be forced to come, but even at that, they're still going to continue their alienating behaviors. And then reunification counseling is not very successful. It's like quitting smoking, right? You've got to want to actually have it work to, to work. Right. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then, if we cut out the parent, what happens is then I see the child and the, and the other parent trying to strengthen their bond, and then the minute they leave therapy, yeah. they go back out to the lobby, tell mom everything that just happened or dad everything that just happened in session, and they automatically undermine the whole hour we just spent in there. And so it has to be a family system approach, and it's very challenging, and it usually takes say, about a year. The more people you bring to it, it's got to be crazy. It's like yeah. herding cats. But, but if you think about it, they they embraced that notion decades ago in terms of addiction, right? That the dysfunctional mm -hmm. relationship between an addict and the spouse or an addict and the kids had to be addressed as well as the addict themselves, or the addict's going to leave their rehab or their 12-step program and go back into the same behavioral patterns or the same triggers or the same temptations and then you're back at square one right so that's kind of taking that thought process to a different dysfunctional behavior yes yeah, so it's a family systems approach 
And it, it does, like I said, it's very difficult. It's a difficult line of work and you get a lot of criticism. Um, but the other thing we have is a step-up plan, and I wanted to tell you guys about that well, if we have a moment. Shoot. And so sometimes, like, so let's say that a parent's been absent for some time for some reason, maybe work or a possible addiction, and now they've gotten themselves clean, they've gotten their lives together, and they want to start re-engaging with their child. Well, obviously, that child might not feel very comfortable with just being thrown into parenting time with that parent. And so we develop a plan based on each individual's, like, level of, you know, involvement that says, you know, hey, we're going to start out with supervised visitations and we're going to have you come in and we're going to monitor how did it go. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to move up to day visits, you know, for a couple hours and we're going to see how did that go. And then we just keep stepping up over the course of like six months to where they get to guideline visitations or something, you know, hopefully beyond that or maybe even get their time with their children back. And so it's a process where I am a therapist and I have a bunch of other roles and titles and hats too. Um, but the what I do is I just measure, you know, how is their comfortability? Every week we check in, how's the kid doing? And then we follow through on, like, if interventions need to be put in place. Like, hey, you know, when you made fun of stepdad's shirt, dad, that really upset the kid. <laughs> you know, so could you be more mindful not to make any comments, even if it's joking about stepdad? Wow. Oh, yeah, That'd sure. Hard. Is it pretty child-led then, but the child's comfort level, or is it kind of both? It's it's. It, there's a two components to it because with alienated children, it's really tough because they're never going to say they're comfortable with that other parent because it's going to be a betrayal to gotcha. their wow. alienating parent. But what we do is we go, was the interactions appropriate? Was there any safety concerns? Was the child in danger at any time? And then we go, okay, well, they've had some successful visits then. Let's step up to the next phase. Oh, yeah. that's a step up. Part. And as a lawyer, what I always hear is my kid's not comfortable. My kid's not comfortable. I'm like, well, of course your kid's not comfortable. You only allowed the visit to happen for, you know, at 30 minutes at the Dairy Queen and you stared at them from the parking lot the whole time. I wouldn't be comfortable either. Um, or, you know, dad gave the kid back early when he was supposed to have him for two hours. He only had him for an hour and 45 minutes. Well, because you showed up. And when you show up, he's going to, you know, the kid sees you and wants to go or, you know, whatever it is. Um, the problems, the pitfalls I see with step-up plans legally is that our courts will do them and they'll say six weeks of this six weeks of this six weeks of this and going well why not just because it's how they do it and that's yeah, how they always yeah. you were nodding do you see a lot of the same in yeah way? well yes and no um i definitely see step up plans with almost always is with a therapist involved so there's there's this tug of war because we don't want the therapist to play judge give the therapist too much um you know discretion and role so you're not going to see you know a judge say well it's going to be per the therapist determination how the step up works but the therapist and almost always there's a gal or child rep that is communicating with the therapist and then the gal We'll get the therapist's recommendations and report to the court. So it's a combination of people kind of looking in, um, in terms of what, how the interaction is going and when is the next appropriate step up. It's definitely not perfect, but I definitely see a number of people looking into the process and progress. So a ton of information, but the thing I like coming out of this is it sounds like there's ways to solve a lot of these. So if people have Eternal questions, optimist. on I am the optimist, which is crazy. <laughs> Um, if people want to know more about reunification counseling, but also a lot of other interesting things you talked about, what's the best way to get hold of you? Um, well, um, so I have, we have two practices. I have my um, therapy practice, which, which is New Vista Behavioral Health. 
And it's um, www.newvistanwi.com. You got it right. I was watching it. And then um, at Schuler and LeBlanc, we just opened a guardian at Lightham parenting coordination and um, mediation practice in wow. Northwest Indiana. So, it's just the first announcement? Um, <laughs> there you go. Look at it. So uh, Schuler and LeBlanc is um, – it's just www.schulerleblanc, okay. which is S-C-H-U-L-L-E-R-L-E-B-L-A-N-C.com. Best phone number if they want to give you um, a call? It, it's 219-285-2143 or 219-484-2143. Awesome. Moving on. Moving on. Um, our next segment is brought to you with a special thanks to our sponsor, Linda Lucatorto and the Oasis Experience. A divorce coach can be your most valuable asset as you navigate your divorce. Linda educates her clients as to the process and the realities of divorce, as well as the various options or methods that are available to them. She prepares her clients for meetings with attorneys and other professionals. And according to Linda, knowledge is power and it helps reduce the fear of the unknown, which for most people, if you haven't been divorced before, that's one of the bigger fears. Check out their website at oasisexperience.com or call Linda at 630-887-0374. So, again, I was reading, I was a Doug gave us some more light reading. Some more light. Well, you know, but I've been reading more and more I'm hearing about. I'm hearing about it from attorneys. Is that the divorce rate's dropping. Um, It's dropping especially around uh, millennials, but it's dropping in general. Um, I actually want to to ask, Laura, are you seeing, what are you seeing on the financial side? Is there a financial component to that? Because I want to ask you guys, I want to know why you think that's happening, why people are getting married less, and how it's really affecting divorce. So first, what are your thoughts? Well, I, when we're talking about millennials, I'm not sure how many millennials are actually getting married. Um, that may be part of the reason for the divorce rate being lower. Um, you know, they they live together, they're, they've got domestic relationships, um, but don't actually get married. Yeah. I mean, I also see reasons on, you know, you were talking about, you know, those gray divorces. I have people come to me and looking at their finances, I look at them and go, you get divorced, one of you is going to lose insurance. Can you afford that? And then, yeah, we look at that and, you know, there are times where I say, okay, well, can you guys stick it out for another two years before the other one can get on Medicaid and then get divorced? And they're like, yeah, it's definitely worth it. Um, So you're saying they're just not going through the transactional component of divorce, but they're Mm -hmm. living separately. Effectively divorced, but not legally divorced. I mean, I also get people who come to me and they're like, I, so when I went out on my own, my very first new divorce client um, was right around Christmas, and he was that was his Christmas self to himself. His Christmas present to himself was to finally get divorced. They had been separated and living apart for like six years, and they had an eight-year-old kid. And so a lot of people don't get divorced because they don't think they can afford it. I just say it's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the statistics here, they said the millennials, was that the average age has changed from 2003 till now, that the average age for men has gone from 27 to 30, and women from 25 to 28. So three years older, people are getting married. So where getting married used to be the kind of like launch pad for your adult life, right? You'd get married young, launch your life, and build a life together. People are building their lives and then becoming much more selective about whether or not to join that life with someone else in marriage, um, particularly millennials, because they're not doing it as early. Um, I think that's an interesting. Uh, yeah, about why they're and doing I've it. worked with couples who have gotten married simply for the health insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really? 
Oh yeah. Wow. Yep. And, and what are you seeing though from a financial perspective? Is is it is there a financial perspective where? Because I know you do stuff outside, obviously, of the divorce realm as well. Is there a financial perspective where people are choosing not to get married because, you know, there's the financial question of getting divorced? My guess is it impacts it both ways. Like, what are you seeing in your world? Well, I don't see people avoiding marriage because they're afraid of getting divorced. They're no, no, it was meant more that they don't have the resources, right? So they're or they want to be saying, financially stable yeah, before they get married. Stable. So divorce, people might not get divorced because they look and say, geez, we're going to put each other in the poorhouse. So let's just come up with some kind of solution. Yeah, I, I do have, um, you know, because I also do paternity cases. And so it's essentially like, okay, we're separating. We need to figure out custody, child support, um, but we were never married. And there are times where they never got married because he didn't want to add her to the house or the wife, you know, the wife would lose benefits or the child would lose benefits because, you know, adding that extra income would, would lose something. Um, there's also, you know, because of changes in healthcare law, where if your spouse has employer insurance available to them, then they can't be on yours. And so it's something too, where, you know, people are starting to look at that, not only about, you know, they're looking at healthcare on a broader scheme of, do I take this job because it has health insurance, but it's not as good as my husband's health insurance. So is it really worth that dollar pay raise when I, when I counter in, I now have to pay extra for health insurance or have, you know, worse insurance. So I think just as a society, we, one, we've taken away the taboo of, you know, living together before marriage. Um, we've taken away the taboo of getting married older. And so we're starting to think at, think of things and really look at things from a financial perspective and but go, is it all money? Is that, there that? Is it all, or are they not getting married? What do you, like, from a, from a broader sense, right? Like what, what do you think might be driving that? Is there a psychological component? Well, I know that I've worked with many children, adult children of divorce where the parents went through a bad divorce and they're on my couch in their twenties and thirties, you know, just really, said, do you really have a couch? Like, me. I Never do have a couch. Yes. Yes. Many couches. <laughs> yeah, many couches. So many couches. I try to make it look very home-like. Okay. Um, but the but the, the thing is, I, I, I get where they've just been so damaged by their own parents' divorce that they never want to put anybody, any child through so that. So they're not getting married because of that or not getting divorced? Absolutely. No, not getting married. Really? Yeah, and they're, they're just really turned off to the whole idea of marriage. The fact that I'd have to share half my income with somebody. You know, it's bad enough I have to pay child support or half my assets are with somebody. Well, what's it, I, there's, I think there's this, another side to that phenomenon, though, because I was telling you that story where I was playing poker with a guy who wasn't going to get a vasectomy because he was convinced both of him, he and his wife came from divorced households. And he said, <laughs> when we inevitably get divorced, I still, you know, he wanted Wanna to have a younger wife. And mm -hmm. he said to be more marketable, he still needed to, to be fertile, I guess. That's but so, that was an actual I, thought process. That was, it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot can't of us, they reverse those, though? That yes. whole aspect, they can, but I'm sure it's a lot of work and cost. <laughs> but there was that aspect of the other side of it, right? So we've been talking about people not getting divorced. But for this individual, divorce was like, hey, this is just kind of how it's done and you know you kind of move on to the next phase and, and it's just like so a second career for a lot of these these children they grow up they've been involved in custody battles so they were 18 years away age they finally get away from both of these parents usually and then they're like just completely turned off to the idea of it so this article that you sent had some interesting points one of them said that there's two types of cohabitation one is people move in together because they found a good match they want to do a quick run through before they get married 
And the other is because it solves a uh, logistical liquidity or loneliness problem and that low income couples tend to move in together sooner than college educated ones, making marriage more of an attainable goal for those that are more affluent or more educated. And that uh, there's a 50 50 chance that a child born into a cohabitating couple was not planned versus one in five for a married couple. So children are being they born into They solve the these. loneliness problem and they create a new problem. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. But children are being born into these cohabitation relationships that maybe weren't chosen based on the love of their life, but more of a economic or logistical issue. And then one of every two children born into cohabitating parents will endure a breakup, a breakup by age nine versus one in five with uh, parents who are married. So it's just... People living together then create these families that bear out what you were saying, the the hurt and the... Can I say one more thing? Yeah. And I, I know that I do value marriage. I did actually get married, although for financial purposes, for financial aid reasons, I didn't get married till after I got out of college. <laughs> <laughs> I but, like that. It's very strategic. <laughs> anyways. But the, the thing, too, is that there is this strange gray where there's this ambiguity. And, you know, kids can feel it where there's just this lack of commitment in a lot of the households that don't have two married parents. And like, sometimes I'll have kids all like, all I want for Christmas is my parents to get married, you know, things like that. And it's just really all my other friends, like a Hallmark movie. Like, well, it's gotta be so media driven too, though. Like the, the, the media version of marriage, right? Like the wedding industry is billions of dollars a year for a reason, because everyone has that, that image of, Happily ever after. That's why right. the divorce industry is billions of dollars. Absolutely. I think you also have to look at whether the parents are open in their commitment to each other. I mean, you, you have a great example with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. They've been together for, shoot, I don't know, longer than I've been alive, I think. Um, they both had marriages that didn't work, but they're conscious about being together. And, you know, their kids together and even their, you know, the stepkids that they've brought in, um, there's no doubt in anybody's mind there that those two people are together. Um, so I think a lot of times when you have kids who are like, I just want my parents to be married. When you start a relationship of and move in and commit to each other out of convenience or, you know, something other than, you know, a loving commitment and a purposeful commitment, you have that situation. And so, you know, I'm, when I do these GAL cases and I go in and I talk to these kids, it's like, oh, yeah, well, mom and dad fought and then dad laughed. And, you know, I didn't know when he was going to come home. And then when he came home, mom laughed. And, of course, you know, the parents are like, oh, we never fight in front of the kids. Okay, well, you may not have, you know, come to fisticuffs, but you guys were giving each other the silent treatment. You both took off. The kid didn't know what was going on. The kids know the kids everything. Know. The kids know. And so when we say, like, okay, let's shield our kids from things, we're not talking about, like, don't give them any information. Let them know what's going on. But at the same token, you know, like, Angeline has in in her materials, we call them the divorce rules. And I've started giving those out in all of my cases. I actually go through them with the kids. And it's, like, 15 or 20 things of, like, hey, don't do this. Don't do this. Let me do this. But and, I would be really impressed if then, when everyone's together, you wore a striped shirt and had a whistle. And if oh, I could do rules, that. So I actually know, grew up penalty, with coaches. Put them in the box. Yeah, I grew up with coaches, so I definitely have a striped shirt and a whistle somewhere. Um, but yeah, I'll have kids go through it, and I'll start reading the list of like, okay, these are things that you can say 
all right, mom and dad, that's rule number five. I don't want to talk about that. Yep. And I won't now, get kids spontaneously well, say, oh, like mom did. With, with like all did. this happening and a, a drop in all this, do you think that this trend will continue? I know I talk to a lot of divorce attorneys, financial advisors, people just in the divorce industry. And they they feel that this trend is probably going to continue. That it's, I mean, it's not going to be single digits, obviously. But but it's going to continue. The, the, the shape of the family is going to change. Marriage, all that stuff is going to change. What are your thoughts on whether that's going to continue? I think trends change. And I think, you know, history, I think things are cyclical. The market goes mm-hmm. up and down. Trends go up and down. What's popular, you know, changes. So I think that this is also. So bell bottoms and marriage are going to come back. I think, you know, people want to, you know, just like when we had the revolution, you know, the hippie revolution, people want to rebel against the establishment and then people get more traditional then they rebel against the establishment and get mm-hmm. more traditional. So I do think that it fluctuates. And I think that's just human nature to go in cycles. Um, and I and I think a lot of it, it does revolve around kind of the examples that are set. Um, what the social norms are, what's acceptable. Like now, same-sex marriage, finally, thank goodness, is legal. So now we can, you know, so the marriage rate might go up because now there's more segments of the population that are not isolated from being able to. the rest of us. Absolutely. They have the the equal (laughs) right to do that. Oldest joke ever. I know. (laughs) You're aging yourself with your jokes. Well, I am, I am. And there might be new um, economic motivators. For example, I've seen... I've seen young couples get married that live together because they want to file joint tax returns. And it's just economically, they're better off. One of them earns more, one well, of them earns less. If you were to look at marriage, it was economic way, way back when. So maybe mm-hmm. you're right. Everything old is new. We're talking thousands of years, but everything old is new. I want two goats. Yeah. Two goats for my daughter. Two goats. All right. You are listening to Getting Split Ready. I'm going to say it again. Chicago's premier divorce podcast. And tonight, we have some fantastic guests. We're going to talk a little bit next about different types of divorce. But our panel tonight, Olga Stambler from Hearst, Robin and Kay, LLC. Laura Barr from Embark Collaboration. Angeline Schuler from New Vista Behavioral Health. And your new venture, which is, say it again because I don't have it in my bio. Schuler and LeBlanc. Schuler and LeBlanc, that's easy because you're both Alternative right dispute resolutions. And then Linda LeBlanc from LeBlanc and Mulholland. Tonight's show is brought to you by the Oasis Experience, founded by Lindo, Linda Lucatardo. In 1999, the Oasis Experience has been a premier divorce support and an education provider in the Chicagoland area for over 20 years. Check out their website at oasisexperience.com. So, Olga, I was really excited about this because we've actually been talking about all these different ways to deal with, you know, Different, like, is divorce getting more common and kids and all that? But there's a lot of different kinds of divorce. And I hear the term alternative dispute resolution thrown a lot. Yes. Talk a little bit about that if you could. So everybody knows the traditional, you go, you file a petition in court, and then there's a judge that kind of looks over your shoulder. The attorneys go check in, tell, tell the judge how it's going, how they're exchanging financial records or what's going on with the kids. And the judge kind of runs the show. Um, and that's kind of what everybody's familiar with. But there are alternatives to that. And there are two. Um, mediation, um, and I am a Cook County approved mediator, and collaborative uh, divorce, which is now 
an actual law in Illinois, the Collaborative Practice yeah, Act. Yeah, I saw that on the site. Part of the Collaborative. And we have a day, yes. don't we? Have yeah. a day. Like, I think it's October 26th is Collaborative Practice Day or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. October 26th. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I do I have, to, do just, I have to get you guys gifts because you're CLI fellows? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, you do. Oh, yeah. you they need to be expensive, too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yes, and I am a fellow of CLII. So, um, mediation almost always is voluntary. In Cook County, a judge um, will order parents to go to mediation to resolve parenting issues. But when you want to choose mediation as your whole divorce process, that is voluntary as well as collaborative process, that's voluntary. So um, some couples might say, I don't want to file anything in court. I don't want a judge looking over our shoulder. We want to have more autonomy and be more empowered to resolve our issues ourselves and look at our unique fa family circumstances and keep that acrimony that can happen when you're litigating and the stress of that and the cost of that down. So one way to do it, mediation, um, there's one neutral person, the mediator, um, and contrary to popular belief, that mediator cannot impose a result. The mediator is there to really help the parties flush out issues. They're there to facilitate conversations. They're there to really help the parties think through what are their goals, needs, priorities, concerns, and help them be in a room where they can hear each other because there's a neutral person there that kind of can referee the conversation so they can't scream over each other. So, that, so they have a greater ability to hear each other, generally, hopefully. That's the goal. Um, the mediator can't give legal advice. Um, they're, they're really a facilitator. So I would encourage couples that are considering this to but still consider. What they do is binding, though, right? No, it is not. Okay. No. Um, that It's not arbitration, which is binding. Okay. Mediation is, again, completely voluntary. So any agreements are voluntary a, a mediator cannot bind anybody to anything they're just a facilitator but once they sign it and file That's it with the court it's like what he's decree. asking right so if you actually reach an agreement at some point an attorney will have to get involved because a mediator cannot file a petition for dissolution of marriage in court to actually get a court date to come and enter an agreement because until it is stamped by a judge after approval it's not really a final divorce judgment so a mediator can help you reach your resolutions, but then an attorney would have to actually draft a proper document that would be entered as a final divorce judgment in court. So it's not bind. That's when it's binding. So until that happens, it's not really binding because anything that happens in mediation is 100% confidential. So you can't go to court and say, oh, well, he promised this and she promised that in mediation. So now, judge, make them comply, make them keep their word. You can't bring anything into court that happened in mediation. Got it. Now, collaborative is a, is a different model. Um, it involves two attorneys it that are... It appeals to my optimism. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it involves two attorneys that are collaboratively trained, but it's a team approach. It's kind of a more, it takes a village right, concept. So you're a fellow too, right? Yes. And so the team would include a financial person and a mental health professional that serves as a coach so it's kind of the concept of it takes a village to really help a family separate in a respectful and um systematic way that keeps the acrimony down but it also really helps address each of the issues that come into divorce because divorce is much more complex than just the law right so you've got kids 
Um, you've got a lot of emotions. You've got, you know, money issues. So when you have somebody that is a mental health professional that can serve as a coach, we also have mental health professionals that serve as child specialists that can meet with the kids and be the voice of the children and, and, and help the parents understand the children's issues and what their roles are and address the co-parenting. Um, it makes it a much more um, cohesive process that all of these components are addressed. And it's all outside of the court and very tailored to that family. Did you, you had something to say. So a lot of, the, a lot of, an objection that I hear frequently when I talk to people about these options is, oh, collaborative sounds ridiculously expensive. How many say. people are we paying? Um, and it, it, it isn't necessarily the cheapest way to end your marriage. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're working on getting some statistics together to figure that out. But what we're not going to end up with is a session where you've got somebody who is so angry that they're going to spend $100,000 fighting over a $30,000 piece of furniture. Oh, absolutely. And here, also to address... Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, to address the cost issue, first of all, the most expensive part of divorce is a trial. Mm -hmm. Trials are can be in, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's also okay. the most expensive part emotionally. If you go to trial, it is 100%, going to be the hardest absolutely. emotional process as well. And the worst for the children. The children are, are by far the most heavily hit casualties if there's a full-blown trial. Um, but if... If you are in court and there's a trial, you're gonna and there's kids issues, you're gonna be paying for an expert. You're gonna be paying for a child rep or a GAL or a custody evaluator. You know, a psychiatrist is doing a full-blown custody evaluation that can be ten plus thousand dollars. So when you're talking about having a collaborative team with a mental health professional that's a child specialist, that's a drop in the bucket to what the litigation version of that a, child, a custody evaluator would cost. If you have complex financial matters and you're litigating it, you're still doing business uh, valuations. You're still having financial experts. So you're still paying for other people. And those people cost a lot more sure. in sure. a litigation setting. And you're generally paying for two instead of just one. Right. Yeah. But you now here's my question. I think a lot of times when, when I talk to people, they think litigation, mediation, collaborative, and they're very siloed. Is there a hybridized approach? Can somebody say... We're not quite fully collaborative. We're a little bit more than mediation. How can they take the best of all worlds to come up with the best solution? Absolutely. So um, where I practice, um, you know, I did the collaborative training when I was young and naive, and then I realized that Lake County was never going to get on board with it. Um, and the reason I will borrow a little optimism from Doug at this point, and I'm hoping that eventually Lake County will follow. It's been 12 years. No, it ain't happening. I know. No, everything flows well, from you Cook know, County maybe to Lake, Lake County, County eventually. Yeah. Um, well, Lake County decided that they were going to impose local rules that are cooperative rules. And it basically is rules that say we have to be nice to each other and we have to try to work things out with the other attorney or the other party before we file something with the court except for initial pleadings. Um, and so, like, that's like, okay, I don't have to work it out with you before I file for divorce, but, you know, some of us still try to. And so a lot of times in my practice, I will get somebody who calls me and says, I want a lawyer because I want to know what's going on and I want it, I want advice. So I don't necessarily like maybe, maybe we go to mediation, maybe we don't. Um, but I need to know what my rights are. And a lot of times I'll call the other party and say, okay, here's what's going on. Are you willing to come in and meet with me? And we'll do a settlement conference and we'll talk. And I always explain to my clients, look, 
I'm, it's, you know, I'm going to get more bees with honey. I'm going to be as nice as I can be. And a lot of times I've had the other party then, you know, call me later for something else. And it's like, well, no, I can't because there's a conflict. I can't represent you. But just because you're not in a collaborative divorce or you're not going through mediation doesn't mean that you can't work together. And we've done an episode previously That's on finding the right lawyer to fit what you want, right? Like all lawyers are not created equally. Don't just go with the one that your sister-in-law's best friend used for her divorce. Yes. Know what you want for your end result and then find the proper professionals. And it may be the proper attorney, but it may be a financial coach. It may be a mental health person to get you to that end point. Yeah. Right. And so... Um, and to that point, so collaborative, one of the reasons, and I, in Cook County, it is, I've seen it work quite well, mm-hmm. and it's it's very well, a well-accepted practice in, in Illinois, certainly in the Chicagoland area. And one of the reasons that I've seen it to be, you know, as successful as I've seen it is that it is very organic and involving, but it has a core. And that core, which is different than mediation cooperative, is that you can file a divorce case and still go to mediation. You can file a divorce case and be cooperative, which is, you know, you just try to be nice and work together. Little C. Yeah, little C. And collaborative is a defined specific model where there is a lot more buy-in. The people all commit to not going to court. And if they go to court, the whole team goes away. Okay. And that, but what the team is and how the process works is very specific to that family. So there doesn't have to be a financial neutral. There doesn't have to be a coach that Everybody comes together and discusses what is best for this family. Who are the professionals that are best suited to really help this family achieve their specific goals of how they want to separate into two families and prioritize their children? Hopefully that's a priority. And then we figure it out. And not only that, we figure out how they work with the team. Many times the lawyers are not in the room. The par- the parties are just meeting with the financial person or the par- or the parents are just meeting with the parenting person. And I need to stress that except the lawyers, everybody's neutral. The parents both hired the coach. The parents both interviewed and hired the financial person or the child rep. So the parents both buy into this person. Mm-hmm. That person doesn't have a horse in the race. And it's much cheaper just to meet with that one person who ha- whose hourly rate is less than both of the lawyers. Mm-hmm. So it can be much more cost effective and they've got that commitment and that buy-in. And that's why, because it's a very specific model with a specific commitment, it is a different result and it is a different process than lower C cooperative or mediation. But you got to know about all of them. No, and yeah. I absolutely wish that we would Jog, you know, jump on the collaborative train. So we have a but, lawyer, yeah. we have a financial, we, we have a mental health. We yes. just need like one more lawyer. And, we can do well, <laughs> and that's the problem is that if, when you find that other lawyer, then because we did, we had a list of like four that were trained in Lake County. And so we're like, oh, you can go to one of these other three lawyers. Um, and it just we didn't get enough buy in from the attorneys. And that's really what's going to drive it. Mm-hmm. It's not the, the people wanting it. It's the lawyers doing the buy in. And are willing to give up the control of letting their clients go and meet with the financial planner by themselves. You've been, I love it. So you have something to say, Angeline? Well, and the workaround that I've been able to do is when I'm working with people for co-parenting and for parenting issues particularly, um, I can get them to come to agreements. And then a lot of the attorneys are very open to me saying, like, hey, in co-parenting counseling, the parties came to these agreements, which are subject to your review and approval. And then I explained to them, like, nothing's actually like binding until it's signed by the judge and so it's it's nice that i i am able to work with the attorneys in that way and even attorneys that are somewhat difficult and 
are known She's for being nice. um, creating high bills um, are still very open to that. And I think well, I've been, that's I've, I've awesome. actually, ever since getting involved in the divorce industry, I've been amazed at the, the misidentification of the vast majority of people who, are, who work with divorce. And they're really, everyone's a good guy. They're really trying to make make good solutions for people to get a new start as opposed to, it's Halloween, right? I could say vampiric, like, you know, parasites trying to squeeze money out of people. Yeah. It's not, not the truth. And it's when we talk about things like collaborative and mediation and aid and uh, alternative dispute resolution that I see that. But uh, do you have a question? Yeah, if I could add in, it, it took Angeline a long time to gain the trust of the legal community so that lawyers were trusting that her agreements were were not oh, being really bullied cool. or, or anything. Um, and as lawyers, we always, you know, like I tell my clients all the time, go to counseling. It's covered by your insurance and it's way cheaper. I already know your, your spouse is an ex. I think Jessica said that. Go, you know. but, and what's interesting is I've been amazed at how many attorneys will say, hey, if you want to litigate, you're going to pay me more. You know, either mm -hmm. way, if you're going to use me as an attorney, if you don't go one of these other ways, you're going to pay me more money. And well, another reality, option, oh, sorry, sorry. The reality is people need to go where their specialties are, right? Like you don't go to a restaurant, and I've said this before, you don't go to a restaurant and expect the person who seats you to then go in back and get the menu, bring it to you, take your order, cook it, serve it, and then clean up after you. You have to let the machine work a bit. And lawyers are experts at the law. Financial neutrals are experts in financial. Angeline is an expert in, you know, mental health and behavioral issues. And in a way that, you know, I know enough for myself to know in, but not what she does. So you've right. got to go, yeah. and that's what Collaborative does is put that team together so you, for you. Exactly. You look like, and, you look like Lord, did you have, oh, it looked like you had wanted to say something. So, so and, in, and just in terms of throwing options out there, because people should have as many options as possible, one, one option, it's not really a hybrid, but another option is attorney-assisted mediation. And I've seen that to be super effective. If somebody doesn't want to commit to the collaborative process or it's not really available because they're not living in a place where there's a lot of attorneys that can practice in it, um, Attorney-assist mediation can be really effective because when the attorneys are there, then you have a point of reference of what your likely, you know, best and worst outcome is. Um, you know, you having somebody help you generate options and brainstorm and process the the suggestions that are there, so that it can be more binding if, if you have mediation and then you go talk to your attorney and your attorney says you did that why would you do that why would you agree to that it can kind of undermine the effectiveness of that um, process and you can be a lot depending on who you have as your mediator you can get really creative like for example i had a mediation and the mediator happened to also be a collaborative fellow but they were mediating and they were in the role of financial mediator and these parents were very high conflict and they could barely be in the room together and it was just getting impossible for them to prioritize how to deal with their parenting schedule. And so the mediator just talked to the lawyers and said, what do you think if we tell these parents they need to talk to a mental health professional that, that can help them with parenting coordination and tell them they need to do that before they go to the next mediation session? And both of us thought that was a great idea. And so as part of the mediation, we had the discussion. So it wasn't a collaborative case where we had a child rep in the room, but all of a sudden we were engaging other professionals. And, and, awesome. and as part of mediation, we could say, you need to figure out what you do with your house. You need, you know, you need to talk to somebody who's expert in mortgage lending, or you need to figure out how to best structure, you know, these brokerage accounts. Let's bring in a tax expert. Right. So there's a lot you can do if you're outside of the court whether you're in mediation or collaborative, it just gives you room to be a lot more creative like and that. productive. So 
if people have questions, because it sounds like there's no one answer, what would be a great way to get a hold of you if they have more questions about alternative dispute resolution? Give me a call. So you can reach me at 312-782-2400. That's 312-782-2400. Or send me an email at Olga Stambler, and that's O-L-G-A-S-T-A-M-B-L-E-R at hrkfamilylaw.com. Fantastic. You've been listening to Getting Split Ready. Thank you so much to our panel. All their information will be up on the website, on our podcast page, on Facebook. So if you have any questions for any one of our panelists, you can get them there. Want to do another shout out to our fantastic sponsor tonight, The Oasis Experience and Linda Lucatordo. Fantastic sponsor. If you've got questions, she runs some seminars that'll be up on our calendar. Uh, I think they're about once quarterly, but they're great empowerment seminars. And uh, thanks for listening. And if you or someone that you know is considering or going through a divorce, please go to splitready.com. Take our assessment, find out if you are indeed split ready. And remember that you can get through your divorce with your finances, integrity, and sanity, hopefully intact, and maybe even a sense of humor. Um, (laughs) If you want to sponsor our show, go to splitready.com. Absolutely. And take the assessment. It's a great way to find out how close to being split ready you are. And it gets you a access to some other great stuff on our site. So um, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next month.